My name is AJ. I chose that name. How cool is that? And I chose that name because it was gender ambiguous. I chose a symbolic amalgamation of my birth name because I don't want to forget the last 29 years of my life before I came out as trans. I'm not mad at those years or memories. I'm a little disappointed at myself for not figuring out my situation sooner. I could have saved myself years of depression and anxiety if only I knew the name for what I was feeling. And now I do, trans. I'm at a very interesting point in my transition where I look like a lot of stereotypes. A butch lesbian, a gay man, Justin Bieber mostly. <laughs> but the confusion doesn't bother me because I feel beautiful for the first time when I look in the mirror. I understand and I appreciate the face that looks back. Since I already told my coming out story in March when I came out very publicly on After Ellen, I'm going to try to approach tonight's storytelling in a fresh way. Who I am. It's really hard to describe yourself without using gendered language, but I'll try. I'm a person, I'm a family member, I'm a sibling, I'm a friend. I'm a nerd who's getting a PhD, I'm a writer and a performance artist. I've lived in five great provinces in our country. My favorite feeling is biking along the path without using the handlebars. I want to teach young people the power of words and how they can make life better for everyone through art and writing. And the truth is, you might never get to know any of these other things about me if you stop listening after you hear the word transgender. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Not A Savior. I'm your host, Melissa. Today we have with us AJ Ripley, a writer, a PhD student, and a trans rights activist. In this episode, we speak about access to transgender healthcare in Canada, the mental health implications of waiting times for medical transitioning, as well as the ways in which politicians leverage trans rights for popularity purposes without much follow through. I hope you enjoy. Hey, AJ, uh, welcome to the podcast. So I thought we would begin with going over some of the basics. For our listeners who don't know, can you tell us a bit about the state of transgender healthcare access in Canada? Sure. Um, I can only really speak to my province because the coverage and approaches look different um, from province to province, and there are tiny nuances that I'm uh, that are constantly shifting. I guess I would say, and I'm not necessarily always completely up to date, but I'm happy to talk about the situation here in New Brunswick, and um, we can speak sort of to other things that are going on uh, if they come up. So, in June 2016, New Brunswick, which is the province that I live in was the last to offer some coverage for trans patients. So what's really happening or what we're seeing happening in Canada and also specifically in New Brunswick is that there's a two-tiered system developing. So surgeries are quickly available for those who can afford to pay out of pocket and don't want to wait. So for me, um, I wanted top surgery before access was granted in my province. So I had to raise them money to get it quickly. Uh, if I had have waited for surgery to become available here in New Brunswick, there would have been, it would have been at least a six month wait on the list after we were granted uh, coverage. So lots of people here, um, even though it's publicly funded, various surgeries are publicly funded now uh, since June 2016 in New Brunswick, there's still a lot of waiting happening. Um, most surgeons, I will say too, in Canada 
operate according to the WPATH standards of care, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And uh, so it's a governing body that, that has a list of standards of care. And you can actually go onto their website and download the 120-page uh, free PDF to look kind of at what those entail. Um, but an example of what these standards of care look like would be uh, breast augmentation or implants for M to F patients um, where they are covered and they're not covered in my province here in New Brunswick. Uh, for those patients, they have to have persistent, well-documented, oh, sorry, uh, well-documented gender dysphoria. They have to have a capacity to make fully informed decisions um, and consent to treatment, which is fairly standard. Age and maturity, that's also uh, really standard. And if the thing that's not necessarily so standard is if there's significant medical or mental health concerns, um, they have to be reasonably controlled and well controlled. And those definitions are fairly abstract as to what that looks like. Um, so we start to see the pathologization around transness and trans issues. Um, in the WPATH standards of care, they also write and I'll just quote them, although not an explicit criterion, it is recommended that these patients also have regular visits with a mental health or medical professional. So there's sort of that assumption that if you're trans and if you're wanting to access gender-confirming surgery, there's, uh, you know, this assumption that you are also suffering uh, with a mental health condition, which you may be, you may very well be, but um, I find it troublesome that that's the expectation. I will say that. Um, the other problem with the WPATH standards of care is that there's a lot of weight placed on hormones uh, in order to gain access to surgery. So we see that here in Canada. We see that here in my province, specifically in New Brunswick. A lot of doctors are reticent to uh, provide support and encouragement for trans people to receive their surgeries unless they are under the influence of hormones. And I'll just say that lots of trans people love hormones. I love the fact that I'm on testosterone. I, I thoroughly enjoy my weekly injections. I feel uh, much more like myself. But uh, by no means do all trans people desire hormones. So the fact that in order to get surgery, you have to be on hormones, that can create a huge barrier for some trans people who, let's say, want top surgery, but they don't want uh, to have testosterone coursing through them. So uh, there's really, I think, a, a lot of room to go back to the standards of care and look at how these things uh, play out in real life. But I do, I do hear from medical professionals that there needs to be standards of care, so I do understand uh, that. I would just always caution against um, pathologization and sort of this absoluteness or this uh, essential understanding of what it means to be trans. I just always want us to keep in mind that it looks different for each person, right? Mm -hmm. And how does Canada's uh, healthcare system compare to that of, of other countries in regards to, to all these things? Yeah, so, I mean, when we're talking about Canada, the most obvious person to come, or sorry, person, uh, the most obvious country to compare us with is the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I saw a map on the Human Rights Campaign website that was updated just this month, and it said that in the U.S., only 16 states both ban insurance exclusions of transgender health care and provide trans-inclusive health benefits for state employees. So if you think about that, 16 states, that's like 32% of Americans uh, have transgender health care access. So 
I mean, Canada, I guess, in some ways is ahead of the U.S. Uh, in particular in terms of the fact that all provinces now do offer some form of uh, transgender healthcare access, but there are still definite uh, barriers in place. So the wait times, as I've mentioned, um, the lack of knowledge in medical schools around trans issues, um, you know, even within the facilities themselves, lots of lots of these clinics, uh, uh, the people who are doing intake forms might not necessarily have a language that makes trans people feel comfortable. So, so there are still definitely um, barriers in Canada. I don't think we have a perfect system. And we have such a different looking system from province to province. So here in New Brunswick, uh, I think there needs to be a lot of work in, in opening up minds around what it means uh, to be trans and, and considering what the W Path scenarios of care actually do for trans people versus somewhere like uh, BC that, and tr even in Ontario, they seem to have uh, fully functioning models that are moving a lot uh, more quickly now that they've removed sort of gatekeepers such as uh, like CAMH used to be, so this mental health uh, facility all trans people used to have to sort of filter through there in order to receive uh, support to go forward with gender-confirming surgery. So they removed these gatekeeping aspects so that now trans people in Ontario can just go to their general physician and say, um, you know, I am trans, I, I want these surgeries, and they can start to, to move through the process more quickly. We can do that here in New Brunswick, except a number of doctors here uh, because they don't have sort of the urban experience or the exposure, and they don't necessarily have the knowledge from medical school how to deal with um, trans patients, and they don't have the desire to learn about it because there are ample resources online. So they also maybe have some, you know, um, latent transphobia. They don't want to necessarily do the work to help patients. So there's a big uh, disparity, I think, between what's going on from province to province and... Um, you know, when we look at trans rights across uh, the globe, you know, things look obviously different in different places. But in America, we can start to see that with Trump, things are things, you know, rights that were once more comfortable under Obama for LGBTQ people are now being ripped away. So these things also, uh, you know, aren't timeless. They, they can be influenced by those in power. And so it's very important, I think, to constantly uh, keep our uh, eyes on what's happening. So, yeah, I think in Canada, we're doing all right. Uh, there's definitely room to do better. And I think compared to the U.S., we, we had more widespread healthcare access. Uh, but just because we, we have access in place through legislative means doesn't necessarily always mean that on a more practical ground level, uh, general physicians are doing due, due diligence to implement these things for their patients. Can you speak a bit about the implications that, that waiting times for medical transitioning can have on mental health? Yeah, I mean, I can a little bit. I can talk definitely about my own experience. And as I, um, you know, people are sick of me saying this in interviews, but uh, it's really important for me to only speak from my own experience just because, uh, you know, there's various layers of privilege that I have that other people don't have. Um, and I don't want somebody listening to this who is cisgender to assume that um, it's the same for all people. So I always kind of give that preamble. But for me, 
I didn't necessarily uh, know that I was trans until much later in life. So, you know, 29 years old, I think I finally figured it out. Um, trans people had been in the media more often. There, there was more personally for me exposure to trans existence. And that's when I sort of pieced together that this void I had been feeling, um, you know, from much of my young adult and teenage life was actually around my gender identity. When I started to piece that together, uh, hormones were so important for me. I, I was scared at first to go on them. I was scared at first to come out um, and transition in a public way. I was really terrified of the implications of that, especially being 29, being at a precarious point in uh, my life in terms of being a PhD student, not having a secure job necessarily. So I, I was afraid. I was afraid to finally sort of, you know, to borrow the cliche, live my truth. And I was lucky enough to have a doctor who was also transgender uh, a trans man like me and who sort of was able to talk to me about all of my fears and insecurities and uh, work with me where I was at. And so I had a prescription for hormones, I would say, for five months before I went and filled it. And as soon as I did, as soon as I took that first weekly injection, um, I knew 100% that medically transitioning was for me and I didn't want to wait. I wanted it to happen right away. Yeah. Unfortunately, at that time, um, I was able to access hormones because I had a good uh, insurance plan through the university. So lots of trans people who didn't have that luxury um, would have to rely on social assistance here or would have to – they weren't necessarily covered through various Medicare uh, companies at that time. So I was able to have hormones, and then I knew I wanted to have top surgery – but at that time, it wasn't covered in my province, and I didn't have the financial means to make it happen. So I did have to wait. I had to wait, uh, I think it was at least seven months, maybe even more than that. And what that waiting felt like for me was just, it was this ever-looming sense of anxiety when I left the house. Uh, in the beginning, I think it was especially hard for me because I was uncomfortable with the fact that I looked um, still very feminine and, uh, you know, I was constantly sort of subject to transphobia. So uh, people would say things to me in the street uh, in the beginning stages too. I, I kind of looked like a, <laughs> like a stereotypically effeminate uh, gay man. So I experienced a lot of homophobia, I would say. Um, people would yell like faggot at me when I was walking down the street. So all of these things um, that are happening to me in, in that moment, I'm already feeling overwhelmingly um, uncomfortable. And then every time I'm looking down at my body, um, that sense of discomfort is like magnified by a million. So it just, for me, waiting... Um, it taught me a lot, I guess I will say. In retrospect, it really did teach me a lot now, having had top surgery um, and, and feeling very comfortable in the body that I'm in. Uh, I'll say that when I look back at that time, I wish I could have loved myself a little bit more. I wish I could have uh, gave myself a bit of a break uh, and had been more gentle with myself. I think I, yeah, it was just a very difficult time. And so, when I see um, 
people who are newly out and they really uh, they want these things. They want these maybe these surgeries fast and they are unable to achieve them or there's barriers like their parents are not supportive. So maybe, you know, they want puberty blockers, but their parents aren't helping them uh, because they're not of legal age to consent to that without parental support. I just, you know, I, I feel such compassion and um, such empathy for these people because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to feel like the answer is sort of just beyond your fingertips and you can't quite get to it. And a lot of people say, a lot of cisgender people think that trans surgeries are elective surgeries. They think that, you know, trans people don't don't need these things, um, that they're just uh, an elective option. And And I can't stress enough the fact that this is not an elective surgery. This is a, a life-saving mm-hmm. surgery. When you're experiencing gender dysphoria, we know based on all the stats, based on the very, I will say, limited research that's done about transgender populations, we know that access to these surgeries saves lives. We know that. Uh, we have empirical data that, that shows us that. So to me, it's not about... Um, it's not only about uh, looking a certain way. It is 100% about validating your gender identity and about feeling comfortable in your body if that's the body you want. If medically transitioning is something you want, you need to have access to that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. In an article you wrote for Vice called What's it, What It's Like on the Front Lines of the Struggle for Trans Health Access, you write, the problem is that the people capable of treating the suffering of trans people in this country are doctors and politicians. Can you explain and elaborate, elaborate a little bit on why this is the case? Uh, yeah, so medical professionals, I think, and, and government officials, you know, they have a lot of power. And sometimes they consult with the people that are directly affected, so in this case, trans people. But more times they don't. And in the case of getting access to surgeries here in my province, I was able to sit down with doctors and politicians. But unless your doctor is trans, and it's great that that some doctors are, my doctor is, uh, chances are what these people in power know about being transgender is very narrowly informed. Mm -hmm. So it's what they get uh, from the media. It's it's oftentimes, um, you know, their limited interaction with one trans person. So... That's why we need more trans people, in my opinion, in professional positions and in politics, because, you know, when that parade is over, um, these people are still there demanding change because it isn't uh, an exciting one time event for them. It's their life. So we saw this in the U.S. with Danica Rome in Virginia when she became the first openly trans person to be elected to the, the House of Delegates. And I think without more trans people in positions of power, so in this case as doctors or as politicians, decisions about what gets covered and not covered for transgender surgeries often comes from a cisgender frame of thinking about gender. And that's why we see genital surgery is almost always covered for trans women, but not necessarily facial feminization or breast augmentation, because a cis-centric way of thinking about gender often gets fixated on genitals. So that idea that gender equals genitals, man must have penis, woman must have vagina, is very, in my opinion, is a very outdated sentiment. And I teach, uh, you know, twenty-year-olds in human rights, and and I hear from them that it's an outdated sentiment that they are starting to think about gender um, in much more expansive ways. But from this perspective, if one wants to be a woman, um, 
you know, from a cis-centric understanding of gender, then one must want a vagina. So, like, vaginoplasty is covered. But the reality is that if you ask a trans person, if you consult with the transgender person um, or people, you will find out that most trans people are dysphoric about body parts that are more readily visible than genitals. So your facial features, whether or not you have facial hair, your voice, or the silhouette your body makes. So for, for me, for example, you know, top surgery was really important because uh, before top surgery, I had, um, you know, deep breaths. So I had to use very tight compression vests uh, and binders to try and hide that silhouette. And that led to chronic back pain. That led to difficulty breathing. That led to uh, a number of physical things, but it also led to this constant wondering and anxiety of, oh my God, are people looking at me? Are they noticing my breasts with my facial hair? Like for me, it was just a a disjointed sense of myself or my body. So I guess what I mean is is we need uh, trans people in these positions of power in order for things to be more trans-centric, in order for legislation to be more trans-centric, in order for it to be more indicative of what it actually means to be transgender. And what we're getting now is just, you know, not that, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you've sort of already touched on this, but there's this one moment in your documentary on Vice on hold, and it's of you <laughs> walking towards a pride parade and the camera captures booths by both the NDP and, and the Liberal Party. Yeah. And you say that the parade is uh, beginning to look mostly like a marketing adventure. And I, I was wondering if you talk a bit more about this and the ways in which issues such as trans rights are often leveraged by political parties without much follow through. I could ramble, I think, <laughs> on about this forever. So in my city, with the exception of my Green Party MLA, David Kuhn, uh, we see politicians every year at the Pride Parade handing out Mardi Gras beads or fridge magnets. But then when we really need them, it's crickets. So I tried countlessly to have a meeting with my premier on the issue. It never happened. Um, I had to essentially call in a full documentary crew from Vice to sort of come into my sleepy town of 60,000 people in order for them to actually take trans issues seriously, for them to do something about it. I truly believe that nothing would have been done uh, about trans healthcare access in this province if there hadn't had been that national and international attention. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, appropriating trans issues for one day at Pride uh, gives some politicians this idea that, you know, I'm inclusive, vote for me, I really care. But then after that's over, you know, we don't hear from them. So, I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I've asked myself repeatedly why more people don't actively care for and protect trans people. I ask myself that every single day. And I think in some ways it's because trans people have been, you know, mythologized. um, And also people believe that we're an insignificant minority, um, that there's not enough of us really to bother caring. So politicians, especially who care about numbers, I think that's probably part of the reason why they're not invested after the parade ends, because they think we're an insignificant population and they don't really um, care if they get our votes. But what I remind people of constantly is that there are tons of trans and gender diverse people that you meet every single day 
um, that you just don't know are trans or gender diverse because you can't tell anything about somebody's gender identity by looking at them. Uh, so that's one, one thing I constantly remind people uh, in the work that I do, whether that's teaching at the university or running my consulting company. I'm constantly reminding people that gender identity um, is not, you know, always visible. So lots of, of people express their gender in certain ways, but their identity is something else. Um, so I, I think when we can educate, you know, polit- and it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to be saying, you know, one life should be enough, but but it's not. So, you know, we sh- I feel like part of me is, is conflicted by this because we shouldn't have to say to these people in power, you know, we're not a small minority. We're uh, a growing population that is worthy of protection and support. Uh, one life should be enough to care. But for some of these politicians, I don't think it is. So what I have done in my activism is remind them that we are a growing population and we are a population of people, um, you know, with families, with friends, with, you know, huge, uh, connections and, and networks and support. So they do have to start paying attention to us, um, for a number of, re- I mean, there are reasons why they, they should anyway. And then it's the fact that I think, what we are starting to, to do in our culture is just not sit quietly when injustices are occurring. So whether that's through social media, whether that's, you know, whatever, I think people are being uh, more loud when, when they're faced with these, these situations where they're being harmed or erased. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I just, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't know why politicians, I mean, I know why politicians, leverage uh issues like transition because they want to appear more inclusive they want to especially liberal party um which in my personal opinion is liberal and namesake only in canada um you know so they want to want to appear more liberal but they they don't necessarily i think follow through every single time and it's my hope that they will start to once they realize uh, that trans issues aren't going anywhere and that we won't stop talking about these things. So maybe maybe it'll change. I'm trying to be more optimistic in my older age. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your own journey with activism. Uh, there's okay. a really beautiful quote um, in an article that you wrote for Vice, um, and it reads something like, Before I came out as transgender, I had other ideas for how I'd spend my days. Perched at a desk behind the sanctuary of my cabin walls, nestled in the woods, I would complete my first bestseller. Occasionally I'd surface with my rescue dog trailing alongside me to teach at the local university and buy lentil samosas from the market on Saturdays. All this to say, I didn't want the activist life, but I realized I was only one of the trans people who might be killed or ignored to death if I didn't raise hell. To survive, I needed to be seen. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what it was like to enter into an activist life, what that felt like, what difficulties you faced um, making that transition. Sure. Uh, So I'll start by just saying I'm like, I'm a fairly lazy person. (laughs) So to be an activist, was a huge shift for me. I, my friends will say, you're not lazy. What are you talking about? You do a million things, but I feel like tired a lot and I'm a writer and I'm kind of an insomniac. Um, but I never really knew tired until I became embedded in trans activism in, in my city. So 
For my own sanity, I'll just say that I took a step back uh, from activism about a year ago. I started saying no to interviews because I felt that I was running on fumes and not putting energy in places that really sustained me. So my family, um, my work life, my research, my friends. I also said no because I started thinking about the fact that there are 10 other activists, at least uh, in the trans community here, that are as eloquent and probably more so uh, than me. So... These are femme people. These are two-spirited people. These are voices that weren't being heard every time I said yes. Mm-hmm. And as a white, passing, transmasculine, uh, for the most part, person, I sort of had to learn that my activism also needed to involve taking a backseat. It needed to involve uh, intentionally connecting people. Whenever I said no, I now often follow that that by, but you should contact so-and-so because I think they'd be perfect for this. And, you know, they just finished this project or they just did. So it's really about um, putting other voices, I think, ahead of mine now. In the beginning, uh, when I dove into activism and and I was doing a documentary and writing a lot, I think um, I naturally felt I was coming from a history of, of lesbian activism too. Um, so I, and I, I was kind of like a femme ish lesbian, I guess you could say. So, uh, I was already used to not being taken seriously as a, as a lesbian. So, so then I felt like, Oh, people are not going to take me seriously as a trans person. I need to be, you know, really vocal in this community. Um, but for a long time, there were two or maybe three of us here in Fredericton who were answering, you know, every phone call for an interview. We were the ones that were asked to speak at events. We were always the ones holding the, the megaphone or the microphone. So it eventually just became so bizarre for me to only be known uh, for my transness. It felt really strange to receive, like, emails, you know, two, three emails a day. Uh, from people in peripheral circles uh, saying like, hi, I'm connecting you with Tom because um, Tom's just came out as trans and I thought you could help him or listen to him. And so I kind of wanted to like yell at these people that, you know, we're not all the same. And they weren't thinking about what it felt like for me personally to take on the burden of, of all of these messages about um, trans people and how could I help them. Uh, it was just the weight of it was unbearable for me. So I, I, I was only being known for being trans. I felt like I was really losing my own identity because of my activism. So that's when I started uh, taking on trans issues more intentionally, I think, in my blog. So writing is something that has always felt good for me. It's one of my great loves. Um, so while talking to the Toms of the world felt like it was chipping away too much of myself, writing to the Toms of the world, that was something I felt like I could handle and still guard my energy and emotions. So that's what I started doing. So I, I really um, – started answering questions that I had about my own transition in the hopes that it would answer questions for other people. So then when I would receive these messages, I would say, you know, please read my blog, um, read the section I wrote about recovering from top surgery, read the section I wrote about experiencing transphobia in the bar, read the section I wrote about my mom not being able to use my pronouns correctly, read these sections, right? So, so that I wasn't constantly in the position of having to open my heart to strangers and, and deal with, um, what is an in, intensely vulnerable time for them like that, that was really wearing me down emotionally. So 
I guess there were also the stereotypical difficulties I faced as a public figure. Um, so our national broadcasting company, the CBC, they used to moderate their comments, um, but not necessarily so closely as they do now. I think they might not even allow comments anymore. But the interviews that I had done with them, there, there were a sea of uh, people commenting, especially the ones um, that were focused here in New Brunswick, not necessarily the more national scale articles and interviews I did. But so the comments and the stories, they range from death threats to objectification to people like unwilling to acknowledge that I was actually human and that being trans was a real thing. Uh, other people encouraging me to kill myself. Um, and so I think that was like, I've always been sort of a hellraiser. I've always been uh, vocal. I've always been an activist. I've always shared my two cents. But um, to see that palpable hatred was new for me. Um, and people would say to me, my friends, my my partner, my family members would say, don't read the comments. But, you know, I, I was a kid that uh, unwrapped and rewrapped their Christmas presents a week before because I just can't handle suspense at all. I hate surprises. So I read the comments. I always read the comments. And I feel like if I didn't read the comments, I wouldn't keep doing the work I do because I could lull myself into a fake sense of security that things are getting better. So reading the comments reminds me, I think, that it's important to stay active about these things, to talk about these things. It does matter. Talking about anti-oppression matters. You know, smashing the patriarchy matters. Troubling the gender binary matters. Uh, calling out racism matters. Calling out rape culture matters. Pushing against cis-normativity matters. Like, all of that. Celebrating your queerness, it matters. And if you don't sort of look uh, and I, I mean, I know that reading in the comments isn't for everyone, and I don't recommend it uh, for everyone. But for me, it's like if I don't see the worst case scenario, I, yeah, I, I won't push myself to keep doing the thing. So when I read that, I think, okay, there's still a ton of work to be done. There's still people who like want me to die. That's that's an eye opener. That tells me that, um, you know. Canada is known for being so open-minded and so loving and, you know, whatever. I, I'm not at all a nationalist. So it's known for these these uh, sort of romantic, I think, um, ideas. And then the reality is people here in my own province were telling me to kill myself because they didn't like trans people and they saw that I was trans and, you know, whatever about my life infuriated them. So I think that was probably the largest difficulty to to not be able to ignore um, blatant transphobia. And I had experienced uh, homophobia when I was a lesbian. I had experienced, obviously, misogyny for sure as a lesbian, uh, as a woman. But transphobia, it was just, it was a different experience. And it was um, a very silencing experience for me. So I won't pretend to be heroic and say that I always was able to find my voice in the middle of experiencing transphobia. Oftentimes I didn't. Um, and that's the difference for me. I didn't because I felt like I could die if I did. I felt like if I were to say, hey, you know, that comment you just made about trans people because you heard the thing on the radio and you're a cab driver and I'm in your cab and you don't know that I'm trans so you made this comment, like, 
that's really harmful. I, there was actually a, a kind of level of fear, like, oh my God, if I out myself as trans, this person might actually hurt me. They might physically harm me. They might kill me. So that was new for me to not always be able to find my voice in the moment. And I think that also made me want to write about these things more because I don't necessarily think it's safe to always be allowed uh, trans activists. I, and especially in certain areas in the world, it's definitely not safe. So writing or social media at least provides a physical um, screen between you and your oppressor, right? So that to me uh, is a gift that I use regularly. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about your background as, as a fiction writer. Um, and I'm wondering if, if there's something about fiction that you think helps people understand trans rights in a way that journalism can't. If there's something about fiction that is perhaps more human-focused, emotion-focused, that, that lends itself to understanding, or if your experience, it doesn't really matter. It depends more on just the person that, that's reading. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so probably the latter. I think... I'm a terrible writer in that I often just blend genres. So even if I'm writing, so I wrote um, a piece, a journalistic piece for Vice about uh, a trans man here and his family um, and sort of what that experience has been like for him. But I wrote it in a, in a very poetic way. So like, I'm really unable, I think often to, to separate these things out. And I think good journalism isn't, the facts and only the facts, I think you, you do really want to write something um, full and beautiful. So so I think, yeah, readers for um, whatever reason, I think readers tend to resonate with fiction more um, because they're able to let their imaginations wander a bit farther, I think, from reality. But yeah, I don't know that there's necessarily... Uh, a huge difference between the two. I think whatever the form, it's important that narratives get out there about trans people um, and not the same narrative over and over again, which, you know, we often see even like award-winning shows, it's often um, white trans women of a certain tax bracket who, uh, you know, are able to afford multiple gender-confirming surgeries, who are able to access hormones, um, so I think we need to start seeing wider, more diverse narratives uh, about what it means to be trans in order to shift um, the conversation and change things um, and make more space for trans people. But uh, at this point, um, as is often the case, I think narrative exposure in whatever form um, is good. It's good to start talking to see trans characters, to see stories about trans people, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know that there's necessarily a better genre or uh, a way to impact readers more, whether through fiction or journalism. I think good writing should just do that. That should be the aim of all good writing is to educate and entertain and hit people in the heart if you can. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Babes web series? Uh, why you started it and what your your goals are for it? Sure. Um, so Babes was like a passion project. It's a comedy about two friends, AJ and Sybil. Sybil is a free spirited artist who is also uh, Chinese Canadian, and AJ is a writer 
newly out non-binary trans person. Um, and they live in a small town and they're sort of, uh, treated, uh, differently because of these traits or, or they're exoticized, I think in some ways, and they aren't activists in the show. They are very selfish and aloof. Um, and they sort of survive this area that they live because of their connection with each other. So in all honesty, I didn't expect that we would get the Kickstarter funding we did uh, for Babes. Um, but I, I'm happy that we did because I've always wanted to write for TV. I did a few plays in my undergrad, but never uh, television or film. So my writing has always been so dark and serious, uh, which is very unlike my personality. So in day-to-day life, I think I like laughing more than anything else. And I have this one friend, Marie, who Sybil's character is based off of. And every time we're together, we just laugh until we're sick. So we laugh at things you should laugh at. We laugh at things you definitely shouldn't laugh at. We just laugh constantly. Um, and when I started writing Babes just a couple months before I came out as transgender... I was in this like super dark place. I just moved back to Fredericton uh, from Toronto, which is a much more metropolis uh, city. And I had ended this terrible relationship. My dad uh, had been diagnosed with advanced Alzheimer's um, and I was starting a PhD, which was really stressful. So living with my best friend Marie and being able to connect with her, even if it was only for a couple minutes a day or a meal or whatever, um, it just made me happy for however long, an hour, half hour, it made me not think about the other shit in my life. And I think that really hit me. Am I allowed to swear? Sorry, I swear. Uh, swear. <laughs> it really hit me, like, how our culture undervalues friendship. Um, so we're always focused on narratives about, like, love or sex or whatever. But friendship, it's like, you know, whatever. People find it, I think, uneventful to watch maybe or boring. So, But for me, it was like that connection, that love needs more limelight. And so over probably like two months, I just started writing down one-liners that Marie and I would say to each other. And then I would take those one-liners and I would grow them into this fictional, wacky world. Um, So the characters, people always say like, is it your life? And it's never like, never just your life. If it's just your life, that's boring. So these characters were based off of younger versions of myself and Marie, but they really became um, their own characters that were far more interesting uh, than we ever were. So we got enough funding to do a few episodes, and then the funding ran out. Um, my producer and I don't really have the resources to make more right now, even though I have like probably, I don't know, eight or nine episodes written. Um, but it's something we want to come back to, and it's something we will, I think, work at finding funding for uh when our schedules aren't uh as bogged down as they are right now but i loved i loved the whole process i love of uh filmmaking i love directing i love producing i love all that so it's something i hope to definitely get back to and i think it's important to to allow trans or non in this case non-binary trans characters just be themselves to be flawed to be imperfect to be um you know, even assholes if they need to be. And AJ kind of is an asshole at times. And I think, you know, it's important that characters, uh, trans narratives not be perfect just so that audiences, you know, connect with them and and grow compassion for them. They should be allowed to be problematic so that 
trans people can see this and recognize that, hey, this is a narrative with a trans person, but not necessarily about trans life. It's not standing in for all transness. It's just this is a character who happens to also be trans. That was, a, I think, a very important motivator for me in making the show, that it not only be about that. Can you also tell us a bit about Beam Diversity Consulting? Because that seems quite different from your more kind of creative and storytelling pursuits. Yeah, I can tell you about it, but it's probably, I don't know, it might bore you a bit. <laughs> so in my very limited spare time, I run a diversity consulting company, and I was inspired to do this after my friend in uh, British Columbia who runs a similar business uh, in Victoria uh, called Ambit Gender Consulting. And what I wanted to do was essentially go to businesses um, and teach them how to be more inclusive of gender diverse and trans folks in the workplace. Uh, you know, I've worked in a number of different places. I've worked in marketing and communication. I've worked in, um, you know, the university setting. I've worked in different environments. And I often find in these environments, if there are uh, trans or gender diverse people, often the burden of educating everybody falls on them. So they're not allowed to just come to work and do their job. They also have to do a whole lot of unpaid emotional labor um, and education for people. And I just don't think that's fair or right or good. So what my business does um, is essentially meet and do workshops, anti-oppression workshops with people that gives them a better operating language, um, better strategies and tools for how to be more inclusive of trans and gender diverse people, whether that's their colleagues or clients they might encounter. And really, it's just about challenging their assumptions um, and getting to them to sort of unpack some of their bias, I guess. Uh, but it's been very rewarding uh, because the companies that approach me are companies that want to do this. They're companies that want to do better uh, for trans and gender diverse people they encounter. So it's been a rewarding, for sure, experience. Um, and it allows me to sort of see where general populations are at in terms of, of knowing uh, language, inclusive language or not. And yeah, I, it's a safe place for these people to ask questions because I want them to ask me the questions instead of constantly asking um, people that they work with or their one trans family member questions. Like I want it to be, uh, you know, sort of helpful in that way so that trans people aren't always doing this unpaid emotional labor. So that's why I started it. It's going very well. Um, like I said, I don't live in a very big city, but I've already had um, at least a couple workshops a month. So I feel I feel like it's growing too and uh, words getting out and people that I've encountered um, are very receptive and very open and, and want to change. And I think that's helped me on my path to increase optimism. <laughs> So the last question I have for you um, is more for our listeners who might want to be effective allies or advocates um, for trans rights. So what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think I, I sort of touched on this before. Um, but just listen. I think listen. Don't expect trans people to teach you everything because they're trans. Uh, source that information out yourself. Go on Google. Find studies, watch documentaries, uh, do some of the work yourself. And then 
I guess a more cliche thing I could offer and something that my mother has drilled into my head since I was like a toddler. And the one piece of advice that has never let me down in my life is just really to treat people how you want to be treated. And it's a small thing that we can all do. And it really uh, can make a difference in a trans person's life. So not assuming um, you know somebody's pronoun. It's just a simple thing, right? Like not assuming you know that and then not unintentionally misgendering them is um, one way you could help. So just asking people their pronouns uh, the same way that you wouldn't want to be misgendered. It's just, um, it's a simple thing. And then my more like, I I guess, uh, hilarious answer would just be social media is such a a game changer. So I think um, if you want to be an effective ally or advocate, uh, share this stuff, share the information you come across, share it, um, on social media, share it, where people will read it, talk about it, have the conversations when trans people aren't around. Don't only have the conversations because there's a trans person within earshot, right? So some people will say to me like, oh, I'm having trouble um, with my friend's pronoun. And I say like, well, do you practice it correctly? You know, when they're not around, when you're telling stories about your history together to other people? Well, no, because my stories are set in the past and I knew them as that gender. So then I just, and I say, well, they weren't that gender. They were this gender. They just hadn't come to that realization yet. So, so having these conversations, doing this work, um, when trans people aren't around is important coming into conversations that you see that are transphobic on maybe on social media and, uh, disrupting those, calling people out on their transphobia phobia. That's important. I think too. So not always letting or uh, making trans people be the ones to interject. I think that's a super helpful way to be an ally to shoulder some of that and to really just have uh, difficult and often uncomfortable conversations with people um, so that, you know, you can push them into a, a new space where they might see things differently. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks for listening. As always, if you know of any young advocates or change makers you think we should talk to, please feel free to nominate them by emailing me at melissagodin21 at gmail.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-G-O-D-I-N 21 at gmail.com. Remember to rate us on iTunes and to check out our website, notasavior.weebly.com. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. As well as our Instagram page with the handle at notasavior.